Hey everyone, I believe that gratitude has been such an instrumental part of making my own recovery and life better that I want to create something called the Gratitude Zone. And what this is, is I would love for you, the listener, to send me a two to three minute audio clip letting me know who you are, what it is you do, what you're grateful for, and why. And then we're going to be posting it on future episodes of The Road Beyond Recovery. Feel free to send that to Tamar at theroadforward.ca, and there will be more information in the show notes. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Today, I'm grateful for making it through another Christmas holiday, clean and sober. I can tell you that in my drinking days, Christmas looked a lot different Uh, Obviously, I didn't remember a lot of them. I just remember anywhere that I went, I had to show up with a bottle in my hand. And usually towards the end of the evening, well, that was it, blackout. So I'm grateful this year that even though some days are challenging during this time of year, that I remember them, I can learn from the mistakes I make, and I can also appreciate all the good things around me and the people that I get to surround myself with this time of year. So that's what I'm grateful for today. I am also grateful for today's guest, my friend Joseph Devlin. He is so amazing. I'm so grateful and appreciative that I got to connect with Joseph because he has asked me to be on his podcast. I have had him on my show and I just think he's such a wonderful person. Another great connection in recovery that, you know, we can walk this journey together. And so on today's show, he shares his story and how he overcame his struggle and battle with alcohol. We also talk about how he found his purpose, how he ended up doing what he does today and how important gratitude is in your recovery. And of course, so much more. So enjoy this episode. Welcome back. I am hanging out with my friend, Joseph Devlin. How are you doing, Joseph? Tomorrow, I am doing great. Real excited to get the opportunity to talk with you today. I am so excited you're here. And now thinking we really should have recorded the first part of our conversation because (laughs) it was pretty good. (laughs) I, I agree. I definitely agree. It's a pleasure. (laughs) Uh, Well, why don't you introduce yourself, let us know who you are and what you do today. Yes. Uh, My name is Joseph Devlin. I have my own uh, company called Family Sobriety Now, and I work with families who have a loved one suffering from an addiction because I know really all the treatment out there is really designed for the individual who's suffering with the addiction. And I know that families hold that key to long-term sobriety. 
Absolutely. I love that. Now, you have a story yourself, and I truly believe that all of us in this space now where we're helping people either, you know, helping them to recover, find their purpose in recovery, or helping the families that suffer from addiction, I truly believe that our experience is the key to helping us discover our purpose so we can help others, right? It doesn't have to be looked on as something that was negative um, because I wouldn't be where I am today, even though I went through a lot without the experience that I had. And I always start off my story about what was life growing up because it's different for everyone. Like we've all taken a different journey on how we ended up in addiction um, of many different types. So what was life growing up for like for you and what led to that, you know, starting to drink? Yeah, that's a great, great point, uh, Tamara. And yeah, for me, I, I grew up, I mean, I have one of seven children. I grew up 30 minutes outside of New York City in, in North Jersey. Great suburbs, uh, low, you know, lower class, middle class, uh, affluent, you know, community. Like I, I was fortunate enough to, to grow up in a neighborhood where you could walk across town. People weren't really worried about locking their doors. Um, so really nothing, you know, too crazy about my childhood. Like it would be cool to kind of have some like, you know, really wild stories like, Hey, here's the addiction and here, here's how it all really unfolded. And, uh, you know, but you know, in short, it's like one thing I do know is, is as I've gone through this process of recovery and as I get sober and more sober each year, right? Like the longer and longer I stay sober. Um, what I, what I really do look at is the fact that like my, my childhood gets a heck of a lot better. You know, 20 years ago, you asked me this question and I'm going to tell you how maybe, you know, messed up my life was. And in reality, I love my parents. They were wonderful. Um, you know, they, they did their absolute best in helping to raise me around the corner. I had my aunt and my grandmother who lived there and they were part of helping raise me and, and my, and my, my mom's, uh, brother he retired as a chaplain colonel in the air force he helped raise raise me you know and it's still these things in me and so you know anything i'm about to say moving forward is like they are just wonderful and i'm so blessed to have been in that community and um you know but like i look at it this way it's like when i was uh, when i was growing up like things that i realized was i was number five and, and you kind of learned pretty quickly like you know if you if you don't say much, you kind of fly underneath the radar and you don't draw yourself a lot of attention. And, and I mean, I have two children and like I could barely parent them. I cannot even imagine what it was like to have seven children. So, you know, even with that being said, by the time I came around, like my brothers and sisters had kind of broken in my parents by that point. So like as long as I didn't like, you know, burn the house down, like it was OK. Like we were going to going to get through things. Um, but, you know. With that really comes, you know, when you don't really say much, you start losing your voice, you know, because other people would speak for you. And, and, you know, you know, and this is, you know, kind of I look back at it now and I can kind of understand like where some of my self-esteem was, uh, where my voice was kind of shut off. And I also grew up like in a generation where it was like, you know, men don't cry like that's a that's a that's an interesting message to, to, to send out there because like you're growing up and. I don't even know how to process the, I don't even know the emotions I'm having, no less how to process them. So, um, you know, for me, I, uh, I always looked at drinking as like this rite of passage. 
And I, I looked at, I, I was more, I looked forward more to turning 21 than I did getting my driver's license. And so it was like that. I remember like those, those opportunities where I had to have a drink or, or to start drinking and I took them. And immediately, like, it was that feeling that came over me. Like, it was just like this wall that would come down or just this feeling of, oh, wow, this is great. Like, uh, there was a freedom. Because I think when you went, when, you know, I look back on it now and the work that I've done, I, I see that, like, when you continue to, like, suppress who you are, you know, the you have outbursts that come out like in these, you know, either through anger or, or doing something really stupid or, you know, and, and this when I was drinking alcohol, it kind of just let all of that alleviate from me. Like I didn't feel that pressure anymore. And uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, I started drinking and took advantage of it anytime I could possibly get my hands on it. And because I had older siblings, I, I was able to make connections with some of their friends so that like. I was able to get alcohol, like pull together money from friends. Um, and, you know, so we drink on the weekends and, um, you know, probably, you know, where I started realizing that it was like a problem was, uh, you know, there was one, there was one weekend we'd all pulled money together and people were complaining like they didn't have enough to drink. And there was still like this handle of this like wild Turkey one-on-one. And I was just like, what, you know, and I'm already, kind of feeling a buzz and so i just kind of picked it up and just started chugging this thing and i was slammed it on the table it was like start drinking you know and, and everybody left me alone for the rest of the night well that also led me to blacking out which i could tell a long funny story about it and but it ended up me you know with friends trying not to have me walk home and do all those things but the police found me stumbling down the street which then led to my mother coming down to the police station. And again, part of that funny story. But what eventually happened was they were like, listen, you know, we're going to, we can, can, we can, you know, kind of put you through the legal system here, you know, because uh, you you're so young, you shouldn't be drinking or you shouldn't have this kind of reaction, or you can go to this like treatment center, you know, for this evaluation. So I said, ah, pff, treatment center, give me that evaluation, you know, not thinking that like anything would be happening. Well, after the evaluation, uh, they said, hey, listen, um, yeah, I think you need to go to treatment. And so, you know, on my birthday, my 15th birthday, it was like, hey, welcome to treatment. And uh, that really kind of opened my whole I like mind to this idea of what treatment was like and what is um, uh, counseling and, and how do you kind of dig into yourself and how do you do this kind of work and and um, you know, it planted a lot of seeds in me then. Mm -hmm. I, I, I started to realize, like, I listened because, like, I had to be there anyways. So I kind of took the approach of, like, hey, what was going on? But I started kind of understanding some family dynamics and, and how I communicated. Um, but within 45 days, I was like, yeah, I don't see myself staying sober for too much longer than this. <laughs> and just did everything to fight against the system, mm -hmm. you know. But that was really my my first introduction into kind of, where how i got involved in you know drugs and alcohol and treatment and, and it was never anything that anybody had ever done it was just i was looking to kind of have fun i mean drugs and alcohol were fun until they weren't fun anymore yeah absolutely and i you know it was funny because when i came into recovery i'm like i'm nothing like you people like i wasn't homeless you know and i had definitely hit many different bottoms i had gone into hard drugs when i was younger and stuff like that so 
Um, but I was always looking at that comparison, right? But when I started to actually listen to what everybody had in common, it was the feeling that happened, how alcohol took over, right? It was that, oh, I feel that sense of relief now and I don't have to feel my emotions. And it's exactly the same feeling. And, you know, you shared it as well, right? When you drank for the first time, it's this amazing experience that it's like, oh, I can just be now, right? I can be who I think others want me to be. And, you know, so I can totally relate. And for me, it was my inability to handle my emotions because I didn't want to feel, right? I felt like I didn't fit in. I wasn't cool enough. And there's a lot of pressure. And I feel for kids today because I think that's probably amplified now with social media and everything that they go through. So I can't imagine what it would be like today. So for you... You know, how did your addiction progress? And then when did you finally realize it was time you had to stop? Yeah, I look, I said at the age of 15, you know, going through this and, you know, and like that's the first time I'm introduced to 12 step. And and I just re I remember even telling my mom, like, you know, hey, mom, like, you know, this is the first thing that's really working for me. You know, like I, I had even, you know, you know, before that, I, for me, it was like the best outlet in the world was playing football. Like I love, like they were like, okay, you can go hit somebody. And I was like, really? <laughs> and like, I would just run and just smash people. And like, it was just, that was the outlet that I needed, you know, before I was kind of drinking and turning, you know, and getting to experiment with drugs. And because like, again, it's all this stuff that's pent up and there's no, I didn't know, have an outlet and have anything to do. Like, I didn't know what to do with, with what I was even experiencing. And, uh, you know, it even got to a point like where coaches would be like, yo, he's on your team. Slow it up. Like, you know, what are you doing? And uh, so, you know, but so like so, the, you know, the drugs and the alcohol just became, you know, something that was like, hey, listen, this is something we could do on the weekends. This was a good feeling, you know. Um, and it's funny because, like I say, it was like it felt good. Like my first year of sobriety, like my sponsor would be like, you know, like, hey, how come you drank? And, you know, or anybody else would say that to me. I was like, because I liked it. And I was like, <laughs> doesn't really get too much more complicated than that. Um, but the, the funny thing about it was it really I, I look at it and I could see clearly now. And then it just kind of took away any type of feelings like that's one thing that it did. That's why I liked it so much. I mean, again, it was like this pressure relief. And um, so. I, I took that on like any possibility, you know, it became weekends to, to weekdays to, you know, concerts. I mean, I love touring concerts in the, in the summer. And so, you know, that could be just like a two, like a two week bender, you know, like it was, however I could do it. You know, I, I kind of fumbled my way into college and, you know, that was all about party, party, party. And, you know, I mean, we, if class was optional type thing, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I was I, fortunate enough, you know, like where I was able to like, even in high school, couldn't stand school, but I still got good grades. Like, again, I think that's part of that flying underneath the radar, also wanting other people's approval. Right. So it was like enough that I could satisfy both worlds. And the same thing happened. Like when I went into college, like I might not show up for class, but I could still pass it. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, um, too big of a deal. Um, but then like that, the, like partying really, and there's a whole story that goes along there my first year of college, but, um, there are all kinds of police got involved and it's, it's, a you know, I mean, nobody got seriously hurt, but it was enough to cause a problem for me to say, Hey, listen, I need to, to step back for a little bit and review what am I doing with my life before I decided to go back to school again. 
And, um, you know, when it, it, it's funny when you, when you say that, it's like, there are times in my life where I would say, Hey, listen, I, I you know, I, when you're, when you're introduced to like uh 12 step or the treatment and you're like really listening, um, it's kind of hard to deny that you have a problem. It, it really is. And so it was like, w- when those seeds got planted, like I kind of knew I had a problem. I just tried to figure out how could I manage it? Like, it can't be that bad if everybody else is doing it and I'm seeing all this other stuff. And like, I could never imagine my life not being without it or not being able to socialize and, and all that kind of stuff that you tell yourself, you know, like you can't go on living this way, but like, um, so I kind of knew it for a very long time. I mean, I even remember at the age of 18, trying to stop just for a little bit for myself being like, Hey, listen, I think this will be better. And then of course, when I had the incident running into the police, when I was in college, it was like, all right, maybe stop for a little bit, but, um, it, it just, um, it, it's kind of hard. It, it, like I said, it's really hard for anybody to say that, Hey, you, you know, look, you've been exposed to this. If you were listening, you know, that you have a problem. Like you either, you know, most people don't try like if you get in trouble with drinking or drugging, right. You don't try and figure out like a way you can continue to do it. You usually kind of address like the problem. And, and that's usually a, a pretty good warning sign for if anybody's listening, kind of saying, Hey, I wonder if I have a problem, you know, that, that would be one of those things. I always look to see how I could manage it. Yeah. Oh, totally. I remember doing that all the time too. And I would always, Anytime I decided to take a break from drinking, everybody around me knew it, right? Because I wanted to shout it from the rooftop, like, hey, I haven't drank for seven days now. And what I also realized in early recovery was that no one has to talk about how much they do or do not drink because people who don't have a problem don't even talk about it. If they want a glass of wine, they have a glass of wine. If they don't want, they don't have to justify their reason to not. And that's why I think it's so funny because alcohol really is the only drug that we as a society have to justify not taking, or at least some of us Mm -hmm. feel like we do. Right. Right. (laughs) It it is, it is hysterical because really like, no, like I, I can't tell you how I've gone throughout my life nobody ever asked me, like, I could be at like these, you know, events and parties and no, like very rarely does anybody ever ask me like, Oh, how come you're not drinking? <laughs> like, I, that was like kind of the farthest thing from their minds, you know? And, and the only people who really get persistent about it are, are the people who have a problem, yeah. you know? And, and, and that's okay. Like I, cause I could see that and I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm happy to share with them a little bit about my story. I'm, I, you know, but I'm also saying, oh yeah, like, you know, yeah, I, I don't drink anymore. I used to, yeah, I used to drink a lot, you know, and used to cause a lot of problems for me too. <laughs> and, and usually look, they'll kind of like back off, but it's just true. It's like, nobody was like, I'm the only person who's probably like looking at the table going, are they going to finish that? Like, yes. <laughs> like, I don't understand people who leave like a half a glass to this day. They like order a glass of wine and they're like, I see like half of it's still on the table and we get it from dinner and I'm like, Hey, I, I, I just, we're from two different worlds, man. <laughs> I'm, yeah. like, I'm the same way. I, uh, it just baffles me. I'm like, <laughs> are you going to drink that? Like you're actually going to pay to leave half that glass there. So yes, it's, <laughs> it's funny how we all think very similar. You know, I remember right after I got sober, um, before I realized that I really had to change everything. I went out to meet some friends and they had a bit of a, you know, house party kind of thing. And I thought, well, I can still do this. Like these people really care about me. And I remember bringing a six pack of Diet Coke with me. 
And I sat there and in the first hour, I matched them drink for drink. Now, drinking six Diet Cokes in an hour, not healthy, very bloated, (laughs) don't feel good. And I just remember going home that night and thinking, what have I done? Like, Mm. what am I doing? Who drinks six Diet Cokes in an hour? Right. But it was that habit. And I knew that was really that I experienced that emotional hangover. I'm like, okay, this is a problem. Like I really need to change who I surround myself, what I do. So, you know, what did early recovery look like for you? Because I know for me, it helped me build that foundation to actually learn how to live life again. Yeah, absolutely. So like I, you know, again, so I had periodic places like where I was forced to attend like 12 step. I will say like I was assigned throughout my life, like three different times, you know, like this is like maybe like the third time, you know, I chose one time, like when I was 18 to try and get sober. But um, yeah, this time around when I came in, it was, it was a deal. Like I was like, I need, I, I can't do this anymore. And and I really do appreciate it. I mean, I, at this point in my life, I'd been to AA before and there was a really good friend of mine, um, his, his wife, she got sober because pregnant and, you know, he kept, they, 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 they never gave up on me. Like they kept talking to me, you know, which was so essential. They didn't, they didn't, I mean, they didn't co-sign what I was doing. You know, they would be the first ones to kind of maybe mention something to me, but in a very respectful manner. And, uh, that, that meant a lot to me. Uh, but they kept saying like, Hey, you know, every once in a while they say, well, Hey, listen, you know, why don't you try, you know, why don't you try that 12 step? And I'd be like, they're a bunch of whining maggots. Like I am not going to that stuff. Like I'll try and drink wine. I'll try and smoke pot. I'll try and blah, blah, blah. Like I'll try anything else, but not those guys. And, um, there's a, there's a, uh, again, a longer story. I mean, it was coming home from a funeral, a cousin of mine. And it was like, I just felt like I needed to go check out the meeting, like where it was. And my whole game plan was to, to go back and drink, finish up everything else in my house. Cause right. I paid for it before I would ever get sober. Like then I would start getting sober. So, um, but yeah, but I, I went to the meeting and I stayed just because some people reached out their hand to me, you know, and, and I, and I poured some alcohol down the, down the drain and, and it, it was, it was, that was so essential for me in, in beginning that, that, that journey was the people who were there, like people who kind of remembered my name, um, would say hello. And man, it was like, for me that the hardest part about that early recovery was that like, literally like that pole in my chest and my whole body that every day, all I wanted to do was pick something up, you know? And it was just like, Oh, I just, I, I, I don't know what to do. And I would just, you know, I, I didn't have much of a life at that time. Like I didn't have a lot of, you know, good quality friends and I wasn't doing a ton with my life. Uh, I was still bartending at the time. And, but I was like, I, you know, you, you gotta get sober. And, and uh, I did. And, and so it was just like, kind of like to me and it had a lot to do with attending meetings, getting around a community of people. And I would watch, right. Like, cause like, look, 12 step is the deal is, is not everybody is healthy, right. It's not, it's not well people anonymous, right. There's a lot of sick people, right. That I don't know a group like that. So yeah, I had to watch and see who was who. And those were the people I started gravitating towards. It was, it was that community of people I could see that were doing something because as I was getting sober, you know, like those, those times I was just like, wow, it really hit me of how much time I had. Um, essentially I felt that was time that I wasted, you know, and time is the greatest commodity I have today. And I know that. So it was like, okay, I have to do all these things with my life. Like, I mean, I was, I jumped right back in and, you know, 
worked on my master's program like within the first like three months of of sobriety you know people be like don't do anything for the first year (laughs) yeah i'm way past that like you should have hit me like another you know 10 15 years beforehand maybe i would have followed that but um but no but but literally that was something that that i did was i started kind of looking around for people who were kind of not just talking something but were living a different way of life and um i really got connected with these guys um who ended up uh if you know anything about Emmett Fox. And so these guys were like doing, you know, like just, just beginning a retreat at that point in time. And, uh, but it was all about goals and changing and, and, you know, what were you going to do? And I, of course, like the program, any 12 step program is based in the sense that like, Hey, listen, this is going to be an introspective look at your life. And what are you going to do moving forward? Yes. Putting down your substance, your video game, your food, your, whatever you're, Thing may be right procrastination there's 12-step programs for procrastination anonymous right so what if that's the thing that you need to put down that's great but that's not the thing that's going to change your life it's going to be the other things that you're going to do and uh, i just immersed myself with with folks like that and, and i i was like let's do this I love that. I'm very similar. And I love how you talk about, you know, going for your master's right away, because that's me, right? I'm just like, I want to do it all. And I'm going to do it all now, right? (laughs) So it does matter what comes next, right? That's why I wrote my book beyond recovery, because I think my recovery really shifted when I realized that I had a purpose greater than myself, that I wanted to live a better life that my experience was something that i could use to discover my purpose and start helping people in a more meaningful way and you know my relationships were a big part of that so on the topic of relationship you know in early sobriety we do try and mend those relationships right that are harmed by addiction and it's something that you deal with now so let's talk about that a little bit not only from your perspective as somebody that had to mend their own relationships possibly but now how do you help others do that as well um yeah i I would say that first of all like for anybody who's listening and and for over and over like you know guys i work with or guys that i do in my practice because i mean i also do work with folks who who are suffering from an addiction, you know, like I, I love working with the families because I believe the family system, but part when you work with the family system, you end up working with the individual as well. And, and most people will stop at that point of like, how do I make things right? Like it's, it's, it's just almost overbearing, right? Because in the addiction process, right? Like I, 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 there was a point at the end, like I said, it was fun, you know, hitting concerts and doing all those things and having fun, staying at parties, uh, you know, all that good stuff that, but eventually it just, it didn't do that anymore. Like it was like, I was waking up having to, to, to pick up a substance every day. And, but when I'm in that process, I'm thinking this is my lot in life. Like this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And it's full of guilt and shame and horror. And, you know, you distance yourself from everybody. I mean, this is like a thing of isolation. So you kind of withdraw from your family and you don't, you know, you think that your family's withdrawing from you. You think friends are withdrawing from you, but you're re- withdrawing from them. It's just, it's a really sick cycle. So the, the, the attempt to even begin to build those relationships again, you know, for, for me, it was like, look, you know, looking at the thing is like, listen, every day right now is a living amends. You know, it's like my, my, my parents today, they never got a chance to see me get sober. Right. But I love them and I respect them. And, and I know I know that they, I know that they're they're watching over me. I know they're a piece. Not only do I get to carry a piece of them, but I know that they're seeing things in my life. And 
And so I get to walk that out every day for them, even, you know, today, you know, it doesn't matter when my sobriety date is, is every day is a living amends for a life that I had once lived, you know, and, and I look at things differently today. And so I often tell folks like, that's where you start. Like it, it's because I think many people will miss the amends process in that 12 step because they say, oh, it's too overbearing. It's too hard. It's so far out there. And it's almost like, no, nah, if you really look at the the way the steps are designed, like they're done very quickly and efficiently. Now you have to, uh, there's some groundwork that has to be doing. Like, I mean, you know, after 45 days, like all of a sudden, you know, being sober, like things started to not be as cloudy and foggy. So like, you know, I like to be you know, colors start coming back at like 60 days sometimes, you know, it's like, so you want somewhat of a clear head on what you're doing and to have people around you. But um, I, I say is that for me, I think it's all about like, because I had to rebuild relationships with my family. I mean, they would come to, I, I live just north of Philadelphia. I mean, towards the end of my addiction, they were coming to Philadelphia and they were not calling me. And then I'd find out they were visiting and I'd be like, hey, why didn't you call me? And they were like, yeah, well, you know, and then I'd get off the phone. I'd be like, eh, eh, I guess I wouldn't have called me either. You know, they didn't really have to say much. So um, so I, I did go after them. But it, the first thing I knew was I had to stay sober before I could really approach them and uh, and then begin doing some work on myself saying, like, hey, listen, wh where 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 was I in the midst of all of this? Where was my where was my part in being part of this? And, and that is often, you know, a place where, where I begin with a lot of people that I work with. I mean, because you have a lot of, you know, uh, you know depending on who, who the loved one who has the addiction, it's, it's okay. Well, let me just step back and see, okay, where, how was I involved in all of this? And then, then, then beginning to kind of take a, a step or two back out as we're kind of processing some of that is, hey, how were they involved in that situation too? Because um, as I begin to, to look at how, having that empathy for like what position somebody else might have been, whether it's the person who was suffering with the addiction or, you know, the, maybe the mom or dad who, you know, who has been affected by this, it, it begins to, I can begin to process a little bit more and take that shame and the guilt out of it and just look at the situation and, and not say, Hey, listen, because of what happened, doesn't make me, that's who I am. Right. It's, it, I'm, I, I'm not saying that it was a good thing to do, but what I'm saying is I still, I still have value. And I'm a child of God and I have a lot of value. So let's take this situation and how can we make this right for everybody? What, what are, what are the, what, what way can we do this? And I think, you know, the amends part of the 12 steps is incredibly powerful. I love the fact that you mentioned that living amends, because for a lot of people, it will take time, right? For people to start trusting again and for people to go, okay, maybe they are changing because we've used the word i'm sorry many 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 times and eventually sorry just doesn't cut it so making sure you're living that talk i think is more important than the talk itself and you know the finding your part in things that was something that was really difficult for me the first time around because i'm like well you 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 have all harmed me you're not nice people you know and i could find all the resentments in the world but then it was like okay what's your part in this i'm like what do you mean what's my part in this like i these people are messing with my life it's not me with them but i think that really going through that over and over has helped me now in any situation go okay what are my expectations here of this person what is my part in this situation and it is so rewarding when you can actually see, oh crap. <laughs> now I know yeah. where 
I went wrong because we can only own our own behavior, right? We can't, we can't own other people. And so I think that's so important now, you know, um, you talk about small changes, right? Being basically leading to lifelong changes. And I know for myself, it has been those little things I've done every day, like the morning routine, right? Prayer, yes. meditation, all that kind of stuff, which we'll get into. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know for me, that's been a massive shift in my life is doing those small things every day to lead to bigger. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it, it those small changes really, really makes that change from going from surviving to living, you know, and, and so we, it can start really with anything in, in, for me, again, I'm a, a very big believer in community and believe that um, we are always hungry to be in relationship and we're always wanting, we're really thirsting for that. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest things about addiction because it destroys relationships. And it's like, okay, how can we repair that harm? And, you know, many ways that we repair that harm is, right, we, we separate what we call in restorative practices, that deed from the doer, right? So, Deed were unacceptable. Keep the, keep the doer there. So for me as like the doer, right? The person, it's some of the small changes that I did was it, it began with, um, attending meetings for me. Cause I had to get something in a rhythm in my life. Um, you know, like I said, I was still bartending. I mean, and I couldn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. Like that was really tough. Like I'm like kind of the, un, you know, I, I don't suggest that for anybody is to bartend and try and get sober. Like that's not a great idea, but at this point, like that's what I had to do because I had to make money. And but I knew shortly after that, like I was looking for a way out. Like I would slowly get rid of all of my bartending shifts and I slowly, you know, started picking up just waiting, you know, because I was like, I need the money. I just need to how can I back out of this? And and you know, when I when I do that, when I when I'm making those changes, the funny thing that happens in life is and and you know, I started showing up at meetings because it was a way for me to spend some time with I knew I would be like, hey, listen, I know I was going to stay sober for this hour, you know, and be around people. And as I got myself out there, believe me, I did not trust anybody. I had built up so much stuff in my in my in my world. And I look back on it, there's really no rationale for me to really be have been so untrusting of so many people. And but I didn't want to tell you anything about me. And like, I mean, I had to start out by like really small, like telling you like what my favorite color was, because then if you told anybody, what did it really matter? Right. But I was so, I was so broken down. So I, I learned to take those little steps, but I learned to just kind of talk with people. And that actually is what led me to, to kind of, I want to say almost falling into a job of working with at-risk youth. Cause they were like, wow, they're like, um, I think you'd be really good at this. And I was like, okay. And then that's what I did. And so by me showing up at different places, doing those small little things each day, um, really helped me. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there just because I can go on. <laughs> I have a couple other routines. I love that. <laughs> and it is because I've started to make, you know, I, for a long time, even in my recovery, I got very complacent. And I knew that I was meant for something more. I just didn't know what that more was, right? Until I started looking into my purpose and, you know, what filled my cup. And so I just started doing those little things every day that opened my opened the door a little bit wider to the future until I was ready to actually go, okay, you know what, maybe I can do this. Maybe my past isn't something that's going to follow me around in a negative way. Maybe it's something I can use to help other people. Um, and part of that was like I mentioned before, that morning routine, right? Because yeah. it was getting 
those habits down. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now where I've primed my brain. And this is something that I teach about. Um, but I've primed my brain when I look at certain things, I do certain actions, right? I've made things a lot more automatic in my life. And routine definitely helps with that. So can you talk a little bit about what your routine is today? Sure, absolutely. And, and I'm going to jump in on one because we really did like we should have definitely uh, our, our our talk before this was even awesome too, but but like addiction, when we really look at it. It's a rewiring of our brain, right? We we've created these neural pathways in our brain, so it was like you need to start doing something differently. And so for many people, it's like, hey, listen, you know, one of the greatest things you could do is wake up, at, you know, go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. Now that was not happening for me. I, I was not going to be able to do that, um, but I know that that would create that that momentum and that shift. And um, you know, I, I shared with you during that time, right? Like for like three and a half years, when I got sober, every morning I woke up with like my morning beverage and I wrote, I wrote 10 things I was grateful for. And I am grateful for the color blue, you know, brings out the color in my eyes. You know, I am grateful for, you know, being sober because, wow, I can remember last night. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was all this thing. I just wrote them down. It took me less than two minutes and it was like, drank it with my orange juice or my coffee because we're dehydrated in the morning and I would always do that. So that would be one of the routines that I did. And everybody would always be like, wow, you're so happy. You're so happy. Well, first of all, I was very happy because within like the first two months, that pole in my chest that I was telling you about addiction went away. So I was grateful every day that that was not there. Like that was very much in my, in my face. Like I was very happy for it, but I also believe it had something to do with the way I was beginning to program my brain. I was I, like, you said, you, you've got this routine where you're spotting things, right? Because we can, we can teach our brain how to do that. And, um, and, and it, it, it's not as difficult as I think sometimes we, I would have made it out to be. Right. You know, like, oh, this is going to be something. No, it's not. It's like because then that really defeats the purpose. Right. Because like we want to retrain the brain to be able to do um, to be in contact, to be like happier, to live these more productive lives and just um, enjoy the moment. And, and, you know, I love 12 step. It talks about like rocketing you into the present moment. Right. Like what other program in the world do you have to get rocketed to the present moment? Like like it's just like but. And, and, you know, some of those things that I do <clears throat> for my morning routine is I still to this day, like I wake up, I roll out of bed and I, and I hit my knees. Now, I'm very grateful today to still be sober. I'm grateful for the life that I have. I mean, I'm married. I have two children. I have my own business, like just things I could not have even seen on the radar. I mean, just, just not at all. And uh, so I take that time of prayer and then I move into a time of, I was taught, you know, a time, a time of meditation, which is like, you know, this, I, I've developed a relationship with God that I've not, um, that, that I didn't think was possible. Like I came in and people say, Oh, well, you got it. You know, like I said, my uncle was a chaplain, you know, like, so I knew a lot about religion and stuff, but I didn't really necessarily have that relationship. And so I take when I can, like for meditation, I meditate in three or four different ways during the day. But one of them is, is, is I, I attempt to do a time of silence after I pray. And, and I might even say, Hey, listen, you know, for instance, this morning, like, hey, God, give me some words that I'm supposed to say today during the interview. You know, and then I just try and shut it off, but invite God's presence. Like he can talk to me, sit there. I have paper in front of me and can do it. You know, um, I would love to say I do that absolutely every day. But the reality of it is, is I don't. I, I'll, I'll wake up late or, or I won't take the book out or I'll just kind of do something else. Um, but it, but I practice really hard today not practice hard. It's kind of not it's an oxymoron for what I'm about to say. I do my best to enjoy the small moments. Like I was at the pool the other day 
and it just my son had caught caught my eye when we were you know out there swimming he's playing in this water that's coming up to him and i'm like that's fun like god thanks and so the more and more I, I can practice being in that moment, the, I find that it helps me. Those small, like I consider that a moment of meditation. I am better equipped to handle the different conversations I have throughout the day. And amazingly, sometimes people will say something to me or a situation will occur. And I used to respond with like fight or flight, you know, and now I can just respond with taking a breath and being like, okay, hey, we're here. How can we best you know, how can we best work through this situation that's before us? And it's not an attack on me and it's not an attack on anybody else because everybody's going through their own thing. And, and that is a conscious practice each and every day. Yeah. It is. And it's something that I've been learning about with emotion, emotional intelligence is that I was very reactive, right? Anything would be one of my emotional triggers, right? I didn't learn how to identify, okay, what is it that I'm feeling? Why am I feeling this? Let's not freak out here because that doesn't get us anywhere. And yeah, that's been a that's been a game changer for me. So I love how you hit on the gratitude. So let's talk about the gratitude shift. And, you know, you talk about how community networking can actually help others while you're while you're helping yourself. And this is something that I learned in recovery as well. Yeah. Um the, the quickest thing I think to find gratitude, right, is to go help somebody else. Yeah. And, and I'm really, um, you know, this, this concept was introduced to me about five years ago with somebody by the name of Heidi Baker talking about loving the person in front of you, right? So this very moment, I'm, I'm always in front of somebody. So how can, how can I really like love that person? And that means that I've got to change kind of really, it takes the focus way off of me and puts it more on like, hey, listen, you know, God loves this person in front of you so much, you know, how can you, you know, how can you help them see that? Right. Because like when I'm steeped in my addiction and like, if you were to come up to me and talk to me like, Hey, so I really love you and God loves you. And I would have been like, yes, that's right. Thank you very much. Go that way. I'm going to go light a cigarette and hit the bar. <laughs> so, um, so it is, it, it, it does, it does take a little bit of something to, to say, um, you know, but really working with somebody that's right in front of you, right? Like is the minute I can do that, the better off I am. So, and, and the, you know, again, getting sober is real easy. Like I, my 12 step program is different than my, my business, you know, but it looks like if somebody needs help, you, you reach out, right. You know, if it's something in my community, um, I, you know, I go to a church. And so if there's something that needs to be done there, I do that, right. Incorporating that. And that always, brings in it's, it's always ends up multiplying and helping other people out right like so um in in the midst of addiction right i'm affecting five to six people almost on every one of my actions well now i'm sober so now i can do an action and it affects five or six different people in such a a, a more positive positive way yeah and that's something that i talk to people about who are stuck in recovery is that you know, when you become other people centered, it actually helps you more than it helps them sometime. And it's why I love what I do today, because I'm able to experience that in a different way, not only in my recovery, but now in my career. And I, I remember the first time my sponsor when, because, you know, I used to be like, well, I don't want to burden you with all my drama and all my stories and what's going on in my head. 
And she's like, listen, stop being so selfish. Tell me what's going on with you because you're actually helping me more than I'm helping you. And I thought, how in, on earth is that possible? And when, until I finally started helping other people and becoming not so focused on myself, I never realized that when somebody comes to you for help, it takes you out of your head. You stop thinking about all your problems and you can start focusing on other people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and it'll, and it'll happen. The more you do it, the more those things will come up for you. It is, it is one of those things like where I could be, you know, really, you know, upset, like, you know, something that my son had done, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'll talk to a friend of mine and, you know, and he'll be like, Hey, listen, yeah, my son's really sick and this is what's going on with him. And it flips it right in, in the moment going, wow. You know, I, I, Wow, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm upset this thing with my son and meanwhile, your son's going through this sickness and, you know, okay, what can I do to help you and your family? What do you need meals? Do you need, what do you need? What, what can, how can I help you? And all of a sudden my whole perspective changes on, on how I'm going to even respond to my, my, my own family, but also how can I help somebody else out there? Absolutely. Now, as we're running out of time, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. But, you know, what kind of advice since you do work with families, would you give a family who is struggling right now with someone who's suffering from addiction? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first thing I, I, I would say is this, it is, it's not your fault. Period. There's nothing you could have done. There was nothing anybody could have done to have changed the way I was going to respond. Um, that's, that's it. So it's not like that's it, but, and then on the other thing I will say is that you hold so much social capital in that loved one's life. Um, I, I refer, um, I refer often to this great and gluck study. It's a Harvard study, longitudinal study that they were looking for commonality in people they had everybody like JFK in it. And they were the only they were looking for what do human beings have in common? And they only found one thing that people had in common. It was that people who were happy were in what they called good relationships. Right. So do you know that your loved one really wants to be around people? And even though they might be pushing you away and like that's like I was telling you, like my buddy and his wife. Right. Like it wasn't like that. They were they were there. I knew that they were there. I knew that I could always call. And that's a good thing. But there's a there's an effective way to communicate that, that with them, right, is to to realize that, hey, listen, I hold this social capital. I know that they want to be involved and there's a proper way for me to communicate with them. And there's also a way to be able to kind of to navigate this relationship. And because the families are the experts, you have to kind of get involved into the family. And I really encourage people to 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 go in with anybody else and, and get some help from a third party, because it took years for the addiction to happen. And like, you're so immersed in it that it's really hard to see that, to see kind of the way out, you know, because so many of the families that I work with, they're like, look, nothing will work. We've been to treatment, you know, five times and it's, there's nothing's happening. They need to change. And yes, you are a hundred percent right. They do need to change. Uh, but you hold a huge key in helping them unlock that. You can, you can, you can escalate that in a very quick manner. So oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if people want to learn more about you and what you do, how can they reach you? Yes. Um, you can, you can, uh, my website is josephbdevlin.com 
If you're interested in reading, I wrote a book called A Step Out of Darkness, How to Help a Loved One Enter Addiction Treatment and Walk with Them Through Recovery. That is available on Amazon. If you can't afford it, contact me. I'll be happy to get you a copy of it. Um, it's really, it's, it's there to help level the playing field, help families be able to get that loved one into treatment and to, um, yeah, just have these good, successful lives that we're all looking for. Like we're looking to get that family back together and, uh, to repair like the hopelessness that we once that, that, that we may be sitting in right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Joseph, for being on the show. I feel like we could have kept going on for hours. So yeah, I I really appreciate your time today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, it's just a pleasure. And we'll definitely have to do this again soon. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you have a safe and happy New Year's. I know that uh, we're heading into a new year. There's going to be lots of exciting stuff happening on the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Now, if you're looking for a shift in your mindset, come join me take the mindset audit quiz and book a mindset audit call. And you can go and do that by going to www.theroadforward.ca slash mindset audit. And you know, when it comes to implementing something new, it's our mindset that's everything, right? It sets us apart. It's our ability to learn from our mistakes and not give up when things get tough. So if you want to find out if you have a growth or a fixed mindset, make sure you head on over to my website www.theroadforward.ca slash mindset and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.